Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Wednesday, March the 13th, and we're talking healthcare. I'm your host, Shannon Jones, with a special treat for our listeners today. Motley Fool Explorer's lead advisor, Simon Erickson, and I recently had the privilege of sitting down with Brad Longcar, CEO of Longcar Investments, to discuss investing in one of the hottest areas in biotech right now. That would be China. And I think it's safe to say that Brad Longcar is likely one of the most knowledgeable and honestly nicest biotech investors out there. Uh, as an independent biotech investor, Brad uses his extensive experience researching companies to create biotech investment indexes, including a China biopharma index, which tracks the performance of a basket of companies leading the way in China. In this interview, Brad shares with us his thoughts about investing in China from a regulatory front, the trends he's keeping an eye on, and where he sees the biggest opportunities for investors. We hope you enjoy this conversation just as much as we did. Hi, everyone. I'm Motley Fool Explorer Lead Advisor Simon Erickson, joined by our Healthcare Bureau Chief Shannon Jones. And our special guest this morning is Brad Loncar. Brad is the CEO of Loncar Investments. One of the topics that he's been very interested in lately is following the biopharmaceutical industry of China, which is the topic of our discussion here today. Hey, Brad, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. So, Brad, let's dive right in. Um, for anybody that's been following you, you've had the opportunity to spend a lot of time both here in the States and in China talking with CEOs, industry insiders, and investors. Generally, many everyday biotech investors, though, have been scared to invest in Chinese biotech. In your experience, when it comes to Chinese biotech, have you noticed a change in investor sentiment? Yeah, it's still kind of nascent and just beginning, but this is going to be a topic that you can't avoid in the future, in my opinion. So China's biotech sector is having a moment. And I really, the analogy that I like to use is I really think what's going on there is just like what our biotech sector was in the 80s and 90s, meaning it's just being born. There's a few really important changes that are happening there right now that are dramatically changing their biotech sector. Before today, all of their drug development and their healthcare sector was almost entirely generic drugs. And they're starting to shift towards innovation and a biotech sector and a really good one. I mean, these are companies that are conducting world-class science and trying to develop drugs that are on the cutting edge are forming up around them. And uh, for purposes of time, I won't go into too much depth, but there's three or four things that are making that happen. You know, the Chinese government is supporting it and investing in it. They want to shift their economy away from manufacturing to higher value sectors like tech and biotech. They've totally revamped their version of the FDA, which is called the National Medical Products Administration now. And from a stock market perspective, you know, which we like to talk about here, uh, there's a change that's really, I think, the most important thing. And that's what's happened at the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Before last year, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, which is where most of the you know, big globally 
progressive companies list had a rule that said, if you don't earn revenue, you can't list on our exchange. And if you think about it, that basically described like 95% of biotech companies because most of them are development stage. And so the Hong Kong Stock Exchange created something called the biotech rule last April and is allowing true biotech companies to list there. And already a handful have happened. And over the coming years, there might be dozens and dozens. So just like there was a big boom of listings and new biotech companies and you know, Amgen's and Celgene's and Genentech's of the world were IPOs in the 80s and 90s. I think that's exactly what's going on there right now. So you have all these elements coming together at the right place and right time, creating this sector. And getting to your original question, you know, it, U.S. investors are starting to hear about it because these companies are forming partnerships with U.S. firms and starting to run trials, not just in China but in the U.S. So you're starting to see it in the news every single day. I think most people are still trying to figure out what's going on, but over time, as this turns into a real big and important biotech sector, it's something that I think uh, biotech investors won't be able to miss and, and can't ignore. And this is just the very beginning of that. That's great, Brad. Uh, you, as you mentioned, it's kind of a boom of a whole bunch of new biotech companies. I wanted to ask about Maybe one of the, the pieces holding back that is the people aspect of this. We, we've heard kind of anecdotally that there's a shortage of qualified people uh, that are available in China to actually run and manage the, the clinical trials. I know that China's kind of tried to address that with the, ta the Thousand Talents program to kind of attract Western talent or, you know, for either from the U.S. Or, or Europe to kind of manage those trials. But have you seen that there still is a shortage of, of good people to develop new drugs and to run the trials over in China? Uh, definitely not. That's something that's changed a lot for the better over years as well. I don't think there's a shortage at all. Um, you know, there, like just as you said, there's a lot of people um, who have studied in the U.S. and other places in the West and have experience at very high levels in our biotech sector who are returning home and starting these world-class companies. And uh, there, um, you know, the universities are really focusing on this area as well. So there's no shortage of talent. Now, developing a drug that gets approved by the FDA is you know, a pretty unique thing. And you can't teach that to somebody in, a, in, in school. And so that requires experience for people who've you know, gone through it here or you know, guidance and teaching from the management teams. Um, but no, there's definitely not a shortage of talent. And in terms of actually conducting clinical trials, I'll give you a, a crazy statistic. So there's a an a research organization in China called PharmCube um, that focuses on our sector. And they recently uh, put out a, a statistic and a report that showed that there's 800 CROs in China now. Like literally like every year, there's like 100 that are, that are formed. And um, there are major CROs, like there's a big one um, that's you know, really integral to our industry worldwide now called Wuxi Aptec and, uh, and a sister company called Wuxi Biologics that focuses in the biologic space. And it's really turned into a specialty of theirs. And so I would watch for China to become a leader, if not the leader in the cl clinical development of drugs, because they have the scale, 
they have this great focus on like the CRO model and their institutions there, you know, they have some hospitals and institutions that do like, you know, 20 times the, the see 20 times the patients that, you know, are like MD Anderson and Memorial Sloan Kettering's of the world see. So uh, it's bound to turn into a big um, area where, you know, clinical trials are done. And it may, it may be the preeminent place in the world here in, in a few years. That's perfect. So you're seeing the CROs in China playing the same role as they do in the U.S. to kind of, kind of outsource a lot of the development um, and the trials and, and running in China the same way that they do here. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, the company, the, the, the country, it's, you know, until you really visit it, it's, it's hard to really articulate just the massive scale of everything there. And um, their CRO industry is just absolutely booming right now. And, you know, the quality of clinical trials has increased and the regulators oversight of them has increased. So like one thing I focus on a lot, cause you know, I like following on oncology and cancer, a hot thing, uh, in, you know, in the U.S. and worldwide right now, cell therapies like CAR-T. Well, there's more cell therapy trials going on in China right now than there are in the U.S. And that's another important aspect to this is they're approving trials and, and getting new technologies into clinical trials faster than we are. And a lot of uh, people here have, you know, raised concerns about us losing our edge. There's a famous... Um, uh, developer of CAR-T treatments, Carl June at the University of Pennsylvania, who's been very outspoken about this, how if we don't, you know, work at the same speed as they do, uh, we, we may lose our edge in some of these really cutting edge technologies like cell therapy and gene therapy. So in many ways, you know, they're starting to have advantages and um, the regulation is totally different. Uh, before this year, uh, or, or uh, or before uh, the beginning of last year, for example, for self-therapy trials, you didn't even have to file an IND. Um, and so an IND is the regulator's approval to start a trial. And, you know, now they're closely matching the process that we have here in the United States. So from, from all aspects, they're, you know, they're really stepping up their game and, uh, it, really trying to cultivate a world-class clinical trial system and biotech sector around it. And so, Brad, you've talked a little bit about some of the changes that are happening, um, but I want to dive deeper into the regulatory framework and their system. Um, what progress has China made with its regulatory review process, and do you think that there are more changes to come that could even make it even better? Yeah, the biggest thing is they made a big statement about a year ago. There's a consortium of drug development regulators, so the FDA and the EMA and the Japanese regulators. They created a, a consortium called ICH, which kind of the goal behind it is to create international regulatory standards. And about a year ago, China joined that for the first time, and it was really a statement on that country's part to say, you know, we want to have the same global standards that all of those other places have. And 
that was a big message to the world. And in addition to that, um, there's a lot of important changes they've made. So it's really 180 degrees different than it was years ago. There was a famous story in 2015 where there was, this is going to sound like a crazy story. There was uh, like 1,500 open applications at the Chinese FDA back then. And it was mostly for generic drugs. And back then, everything was getting approved and the quality of the applications was very low. And the regulator went back to all of these companies and said, we want you to like, you know, seriously reconsider all of these applications that you have pending with us. And we're going to change our standards significantly going forward. So if you don't think your existing application is up to, you know, these new standards that we want, we want you to pull it. And like, out of the 1,600 open applications they had there, like 80% of them got pulled. And it literally was like pressing a button in one day saying, we're going to do this totally different um, going forward. And they've made a lot, of a lot of other constructive changes since then, just like joining that ICH. And they've, um, they've caught up on a huge backlog of applications um, that they had pending there. And they've also started to, just like our FDA, there's very clear and transparent rules and timelines and things that are, you know, written in stone. So if you're a U.S. company and you file an application, you know, you know how long it's going to take and you know what the process is. And um, they're starting to really clarify all of their rules and regulations and have like certainty and transparency transparency added to the mix and so they're using our FDA and others as a model that they're trying to replicate and a lot of the leadership there has act are actually you know people who've returned home you know having had experience working at our FDA so the the goal is to bring it up to standards and to kind of replicate what we're doing and they're not 100 percent there yet but compared to where they were you know, back in 2015, it's literally day and night different, and it'll get even better as we go forward. Brad, I wanted to talk a little bit about reimbursements, too. China's got a national reimbursement drug list that's got a couple thousand drugs that are basically covered for anybody in the country. Uh, we've seen um, the data that shows that the drugs that are covered on the NRDL are selling significantly better than those that aren't on that. That's probably not too surprising, but it used to be several years between the amount of time when the NRDL was out, was updated. You know, the new drugs list would come out on this, but we've seen the time frame drop significantly be, and, and much more frequently for the new drugs uh, that are actually gaining coverage out there right now. Is this having uh, an impact on how drugs are being created by companies and bringing them to market? Absolutely. So you're right. I mean, in some cases, it literally used to take like almost a decade for a drug to get approved. And now that's dramatically ch changed too. We're actually, um, you know, we're talking, this is being recorded ironically on a day where AstraZeneca just announced earnings. And amazingly, AstraZeneca gets 18% of its revenue from, from China now, and it's even growing. And one of the drugs they highlight highlighted in their earnings report today um, as an example of how things are changing in China is a lung cancer drug called Tagriso. And not only was that approved with lightning speed there, 
but it was um, put on the national reimbursement list in less than a year. Um, and that's because they have, you know, a lot of urgency to bring these really important, you know, world-class medicines um, into the country. And so that's another example of something that's dramatically changed, like something that used to take five to 10 years now in many cases is taking a year or less. And so that's, you know, when you're a company that's trying to decide whether to make an investment and to bring a drug to that market, um, that's a huge factor um, that would encourage you to do that. And so, yeah, it's a perfect example of something that's changed dramatically night and day um, for the better. And do you think that it's influencing in any way the, I guess, the the types of drugs that, that companies are developing? I mean, you see, you saw Merck's Keytruda got approval, I think, in like half a year. You know, not Devo 2, you know, PD-1s, broad, broad-based drugs. Is there more of an interest in companies developing those broad labels for China to try to get that national coverage, lots of indications? Uh, or are they still also developing kind of those rarer diseases that might not have as much of a broad label to them? Well, no. So for those, I think what's going on there is last August, the country actually published a list of 46 drugs that they actively want to be approved there. So literally, they published a list and said, you know, to all these multinational firms, these are important medicines that we don't have here now that we would love to have. And there's two, there's two things they're doing to encourage them um, to bring them to China that are important reforms. The first is, until about a year ago, um, one thing that they've changed is they're now allowing foreign clinical trial data as the basis for approval, especially for diseases where there's a big unmet need. So some of the ones that you mentioned, like Keytruda, Merck did not have to run like a gigantic phase three trial um, in China and melanoma to get that approval. Um, much of the approval was based off of just the existing data that they that they already had. This AstraZeneca Tegriso drug um, was the same. So that's an important incentive to get these companies to come here because they know that they don't have to reinvent the wheel and you know basically develop those drugs from scratch like within the country now like they would have had to in the past and then the second thing is you know exactly what you asked about um the reimbursement so i don't think it really i don't think it it's really uh a distinction between like big broad indications or rare diseases like i think what they want is they want innovative medicines you know right now they have all generic drugs and they want you know they want the best things for their families the same that we have for ours and so it's really a matter of just having the best medicines and the most impactful medicines and i don't think the I don't think the the indications really matter because they're proving them for broad indications. And actually, just two days ago, they just um, announced a big tax incentive for companies that are developing rare rare disease drugs, and that was a big boost for the sector um, on Monday's trading. So they're really focused on everything. Like it, uh, it's not really about size; it's more about quality. 
And so, Brad, as we all know, globally, the, the debate on drug pricing, you know, continues to take center stage. So can you talk a little bit about China's drug pricing system? And from your perspective, you know, do you see the larger, more global players versus the domestic generic players? I mean, who's going to win that, that race when it comes to government price controls? Yeah. So without a doubt, I think eventually it's going to be the domestic players that win. And a good case example of this is Keytruda, which, which you just brought up. So Keytruda was approved in China for melanoma, um, you know, uh, five or six months ago. And then in December, there's a domestic company called Shanghai Junqi Biosciences, uh, which just had its IPO on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange on Christmas Eve. And it has a PD-1 that was also approved um, for melanoma in China. And you may have heard, it's uh, this didn't make a lot of news, I'm surprised, in the U.S., but when Merck uh, got their approval and they announced their pricing, the price of Keytruda was like half of what they're charging globally. And that made a lot of headlines. You know, the price in China is half of, you know, what it is in other places. Well, this Chinese competitor, um, after they got their approval, announced that their price uh, depends on the weight of the patient, but essentially will be either a half or a third of Keytruda's. <laughs> so the cost, the, 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 the cost um, that they're able to produce there um, and sell these drugs is so much lower than what we're used to here that I think multinationals for many drug categories will be the first ones to have a drug on the market. But as soon as a Chinese competitor is able uh, to get a drug approved and enter a race, it's going to be really hard for those multinationals to compete with them. Now, uh, like the consumers there place a high value on on multi on foreign brands. Like one thing that's interesting is even for a lot of drugs where there's a generic available, people who are able to afford it out of pocket or who have insurance sometimes are willing to pay a premium price uh, for the foreign brand. But the you know the thing we're talking about today is you know the vast majority of people there. Um, get get their health care paid for by by the national government reimbursement system, and for those like there's really there's really going to be like a winner take all, and I think it's going to be hard for multinationals over the very long run to compete with some of these local players just because their costs are so much lower um, than and they're so much more competitive than we're used to thinking about um, here in the U.S. But the other, the other thing, you know, the other important thing there is scale. Um, you know, a, a good example of how their reimbursement system works. So, like one drug that was recently reimbursed there is Avastin. Um, so that's Roche's, you know, big one of Roche's big cancer drugs. And they took to get on that national reimbursement schedule um, like a 70% price haircut. But this, the country scale is so huge. Um, but ever since they got on that, even with that huge price discount, the the sales of Avastin have ramped very nicely, and it's going to end up being very lucrative, um, even given that huge price cut. So that's really, you know, that's really how it's going to be. There is, you know, companies are going to have to deal with big price cuts, 
Um, but for those that get approved and on that national reimbursement system, the scale of the co the country is is going to make up for it. Yeah, and Brad, one thing that you were explaining to us a little earlier is that you are the creator of the Long Car China Biopharma Index. Uh, now, that's not the ETF that people can buy. That's run by someone separately. And the ETF that actually replicates your holdings is CHNA is the ticker on that. But you're still the one that's in charge of putting the companies into the index and selecting them and, and judging the weightings and everything else. Our audience here is individual investors. Uh, they would certainly have an interest in this. But I wanted to ask you, how do you go about picking the companies that you're putting into the index and also figuring out uh, what kind of allocation you want to put behind each one of them? Yeah, so so the idea here is to you know to give exposure to the entire space. So like here we have in the U.S. the Nasdaq Biotech Index, for example, and there's like 200 companies in that. And the goal of that is, you know, rather than focusing on an individual company, um, to follow the industry as a whole. So with this, right now we have 29 companies, and 23 of them are listed in Hong Kong and include some of these new, you know, IPOs and six of them are listed here on the NASDAQ. And that's one thing that I think is really important for people to know is that there's a handful of really world-class Chinese biotech companies that are listed right here on NASDAQ. So Bygene and Xilab um, are good examples of, of companies like that. And so what we do is we limit um, our exposure to those two exchanges because we view Hong Kong and NASDAQ as, you know, global, transparent, um, credible exchanges. And we look at every Chinese drug developer or distributor or service provider or diagnostics company that are listed on those two exchanges, and we put them in a basket together. And so there's 29 companies like that currently, and the way that we decide the weighting is we have what's called a modified equal weighted um, methodology. So we take those 29 companies, and we start by giving them all the same weight every six months. But for companies that have a market value greater than $10 billion, they get a little bit of a higher weighting. For companies that are between $1 and $10 billion, they get a medium weighting. And for companies that are below $1 billion in value currently, they get kind of a smaller weighting. And, you know, that gives credit to the larger companies for their stability and the role that they play in the sector. And we, we do that process every six months. And one thing that has me excited is, you know, with this Hong Kong Stock Exchange rule and this um, big pipeline of companies that will likely IPO there. Right now, we have 29 companies in this. And over the coming years, that will grow every six months. So, you know, two or three years from now, that may have, you know, 60 or 70 companies in it. It just all depends on how many biotech company, Chinese biotech companies list on those two exchanges. So, so yeah, that's how we have it set up. It's, it's a basket of 29 companies. And the idea is that it will you know, hopefully go up and down as, as, as the fortunes of that, of that sector goes up and down. And, you know, this is, 
you know, uh, just like our biotech sector in the 80s and 90s, you know, biotech is volatile, and especially in a place where it's brand new and, and they're just getting used to it. So it'll have a lot of ups and downs, and it's very scary um, to focus on individual biotech companies, especially in a case like this where it's a very emerging thing. And so I'm a big fan of, of you know, taking a macro view of things. And so that's why we've created this is it allows people to focus on the long-term theme and hopefully the long-term growth without getting too into the weeds of the individual companies and the risks that come along with that. Yeah, and Brad, uh, you hit the nail on the head as long-term investors here at The Motley Fool. Um, you really couldn't have said it any better. I guess to close us out today, what should individual investors be watching in this space specifically? Well, the most important thing, I, I would get back to saying you have to have a long-term view of this. Like if you look at a chart of our biotech sector since the 80s when it was started, you know, it's been a roller coaster and there's lots of ups and downs. And I think it's important to think of this from that long-term perspective. You know, China has a policy that um, makes a lot of headlines. It's called Made in China 2025. And that's really, you know, having a big influence on what we're talking about. The goal of that program is to transform their economy to higher value sectors. And they've singled out pharmaceuticals as one of those that they wanna have like a world-class competitive pharmaceutical sector by 2025. And so you see a lot of stories every day about like, you know, an IPO that was a big success or an IPO that didn't go very well or, you know, or something like that, or you see you know, something about, you know, like there was a vaccine scandal in China last year, and that made a lot of news. And there's going to be a lot of positive things you hear and a lot of negative things. And it's going to be a roller coaster, just like biotech naturally is. But if you think about all of these important changes that are happening, the investments, the people coming home, starting companies, the the food, the, you know, their version of the FDA, all the reforms there, and, you know, the stock exchange, you know, rule, rule change. If you think of all of those arrows and where they're pointed together all at the same time in the context of what is this going to look like in 2025 or over the long term like that, I think it has a very, you know, promising future. And so the most important advice that I could give is, try to think of it from that long-term perspective. This is, a, you know, I think a mega trend um, that's, you know, that's worth putting on your radar um, and think of it that way. Don't get caught up in the individual, you know, news stories or the, or the ups and downs. Try to think of it over the long-term like that. Well, certainly a trend that individual investors should be keeping an eye on. Again, Brad Longcar is the CEO of Longcar Investments. If you want to look more at the ETF that follows this index, tracking biopharmaceuticals in China, the ticker on that again is CHNA. Brad, thanks so much for the time with us here this morning. It's my pleasure. This has been fun. Thanks for having me. And for Simon Erickson and Shannon Jones, we appreciate you tuning in. Until next time, fool on. 
Well, that's it for this week's industry-focused healthcare episode. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Brad. Uh, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan for Simon Erickson. I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening and full on. Thank you.